0: This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Fairlay. Fairlay is a Bitcoin prediction market where you can place predictions on the likelihood of sporting events, the Bitcoin price, or current affairs. You earn money if your predictions are correct. Head over to fairlay.com/epicenter, that's f a i r l a y.com/epicenter to place your first bet today. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is
1: Sebastian Couture. And my name is Brian Crane. We're here today with Manny Rosenfeld. He's the chairman of the Israeli Bitcoin Association, and he's kind of a very long-standing member of the Bitcoin community. So I'm really excited to have this episode today. I remember at my, uh, I think, first Bitcoin conference, um, I went to dinner with Manny Rosenfeld and Adam Back, which was pretty great because I think they're both uh, two tremendously uh, smart and knowledgeable people about Bitcoin. So it was a great way to like hear all these, have a lot of interesting conversations. So I've been, since we started this podcast, I always wanted to have Manny on at some point. So I'm, I'm excited that's happening now. And there is a lot of really interesting topics uh, we'll get to talk about. So uh, thanks for joining us today, Manny.
2: Sure, no problem. Glad to be here. So,
1: we're going to talk a lot about mining today, uh, Many's done a lot of work with mining pools uh, and especially kind of the thinking through the fundamental uh, theoretical aspects, the, the game theoretic aspects of that, uh, we're also going to talk about Israel, his work there, um, but perhaps uh, can you give to those who don't know you uh, some introduction about uh, about your background?
2: Sure thing, so like you already said, my name is Many Rosenfeld, so I'm. I live in Israel. I was. I was. I was born in Haifa, and uh, I studied for a master's degree in mathematics in the Weizmann Institute of Science. I did work on machine learning, specifically semi-supervised learning, under the supervision of Dr. Boaz Nadler. And uh, after I finished my uh, degree, I started working as the head of algorithms research in a startup company called SimilarWeb, which uh, is involved with uh, analyzing web traffic and uh, figuring out which websites are similar to others and uh, offering an analytics platform to analyzing the traffic that each website gets. So uh, I started uh, working in similar web in August 2009, and uh, about a year and a half later um, in March 2011, I heard about Bitcoin, and uh, it didn't take a lot of time since the moment I heard about Bitcoin until I was no longer the head of research at similar web, so yes, so once I heard about bitcoin, so you know like all of us
0: did you count that time in seconds or days or well well
2: no it it was it was a process, but let's let's put it this way um you know, so of course when i uh, um when I first heard about bitcoin and of course the first one or two two one or two weeks like all of us. Started reading about it, and uh, a week later I uh, created an account in in the Bitcoin Talk forum, which then was not yet called Bitcoin Talk, but uh, it was, and I think still is, the major forum for Bitcoin in the world. So I started writing there and, of course, learned uh, much more about Bitcoin in the process. So, uh, you know, I had, uh, you know, it's, uh, even in the beginning I had some thoughts about what I want to do with Bitcoin and I have, I, I've had several ideas, but uh, by April, which was one month later, I uh, started to think about what I could do to make Bitcoin more successful in Israel. And what I thought is that if people had an easy way to buy and sell Bitcoins, then adoption will be much greater because I, I was thinking mostly about businesses that uh, would consider accepting Bitcoin, but they are worried that maybe then they won't have anything to do with those Bitcoins. So I wanted them to have the option to sell Bitcoins if they so choose. So, uh, so it's like- So kind
1: of like a BitPay, like a BitPay payment processor.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yes okay well that's actually a, maybe a more advanced uh, stage because you know bitpay is really good with you know the integration and making it seamless at the time yeah. i didn't really uh, you know consider making it seamless i just wanted to, the option to be out there yeah so they, so that people will know that bitcoins are valuable that they are not stuck with some play money that uh, nobody will want or them to see that yeah there is an actual value for Bitcoin, that so they can sell it at any time, and actually the the mere fact that they know they can sell it can itself make them less uh, likely to sell it because they there's no rush, right? It's uh, they understand that Bitcoin is not like a hot potato they need to get rid of. So um, so yeah, so by the middle of April 2011, I uh, I figured out that yeah, okay, let's let's do this. You know, I didn't. I didn't know anything about starting a business. I didn't ask anyone. I just and and I also, you know, um, like I said, I'm I'm a mathematician. I not really do much software development. I you know I did I do it as a hobby, but not really anything professional. So uh, so you know, so I wanted to mm, create a website for this service. So um, you know, I learned the PHP that I needed in order to do this, and you know, didn't ask anyone. I just. Register the domain, put up a site and uh, posted on the Bitcoin Talk forum. Yeah, okay, I'm buying inside Bitcoins in Israel. Uh, you know, come come and see me. So, uh, and what was the startup called? Oh, yeah. So, uh, this uh, service was called Bitcoin, which is like, uh, you know, like a play on words, it's a uh, Bitcoin, but with uh, a TLD, COIL of Israel. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, so ever since I started it, I had some interesting stories. But the the point is that that was the, you know, my first activity in Bitcoin in Israel. And maybe I'll take take us a few weeks earlier to th- something which happened maybe one or two weeks um, after I heard about Bitcoin, which of which we'll talk about much more later. Which is mining pool reward methods. Back then. Uh, yeah, I don't. Let, let's talk about this more a bit later. But the first thing I di- did was develop a new reward method for mining pools, and later on I started Bitcoin. And um, let's see. Yeah, and uh, and you know, so in the beginning I didn't know who else uh, is involved with Bitcoin. So you know, I I looked around. I I didn't see anyone in Israel doing anything with the bitcoin well that's that's not completely accurate Uh, there were some people who did something but nothing very serious Uh, so uh, so you know so so eventually i realized that yeah i'm i'm the first person in israel that took bitcoin seriously and really did uh, uh, some bigger projects with it and uh and yes, so this continued you know back then you know I I ran Bitcoin. I was involved in the community in uh, in the Bitcoin talk, and was the
1: meetup group.
2: No, yeah, and we also had a you know a Facebook page on uh, you know, about Bitcoin where we talked a bit. But uh, in August 2011, there was this um uh, the first Bitcoin conference ever, which was in New York. So I don't remember when exactly I first heard about it but i think that when i did i thought what does this have anything to do with me i mean that's in in new york i'm in israel so it doesn't really involve me but by a, a bit uh a few weeks before that maybe i don't know 2 or 3 weeks i heard about it again and then i thought this is the first bitcoin event in the world i i have to be there so you know so it's a uh, uh, so in really fast, I did all the preparations needed to travel, and I went to that conference, and it was really great. And uh, and you know, and uh, and I thought that we need something like that in Israel as well. So on our Facebook page, I announced that we're going to do a, a meetup up, um, and you know, so I chose some location, and uh, eight people. It's yes, uh, rsvp but eventually only three showed up, which is uh, me and Ron Gross, which was also very active in the Bitcoin community in Israel, and uh, another guy, which is which is not very active in Bitcoin now. So, so, yeah, so that was the the first uh, Bitcoin meetup up in Israel. Three guys sitting in a cafe. Uh, it's a it's a story people like to tell because it grew much uh, more since then. So you know speaking about meetups specifically. And afterwards, we had meetups with 10 people, 20 people. By uh, January 2013, uh, there was a big growth in Bitcoin around the world, but especially in Israel. So we had a meetup with 120 people. By two months later, we had a meetup with 160 people. In February 2014, we had Uh, the first real Bitcoin conference in Israel. It was a local conference, uh, meant just for Israelis, uh, conducted in Hebrew. And I think we had uh, maybe 320 people there. So that was uh, also very nice. And on that note, uh, yesterday we finished the first international Bitcoin uh, conference in uh, Israel, uh, which, uh, which was very nice. So there were less people, maybe 250, I think. But you know, it was a much more major event. It was two days. It was international. It was in a much ma- nicer venue. So, so yeah, So I think you're that, talking
0: about uh, Inside Bitcoin's television.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, uh, so yeah. This so this conference was actually a collaboration of the Israeli Bitcoin Association and uh, Buzz Productions, which is a company here that produces conference and uh, Mecler Media from the Inside Bitcoin's brand. Um, of course. So yeah. So. Uh, so that was also very successful so so your your, your
0: meetups they, they, they've kind of taken the turn from meetup to really small conference events right if you're take if you're bringing in 160 people per meet is that people attending the meetup or is that uh, a number of uh, subscribers on your meetup page
2: uh, yeah, just, just saying, when you say 160 yeah, people yeah, yeah yeah when I say 160 people I mean the people who were actually there we counted them usually half of the people, that uh, sign up to the meetup show up. So, you know, I think there are many meetup groups where, you know, they have the number of RSVPs and if you don't do anything about it, then after the meetup, the meetup.com shows the number of RSVPs as the number of people attended, but that's of course not true. And I I t- yeah. make an issue of, of being honest and, uh, and counting how many people were actually there and sure. showing that number up and yeah. 160 people is uh, um, the number of people who were actually there. Of course, maybe we miscounted a bit. Maybe five people here and there, but that, but that's the number. That's the real number. But
0: that's and, really impressive. I mean, and you're doing these
2: every every month. Oh, okay, so about that. Okay, but let's. Uh, I'll just make a comment, and you know, I there were some uh, people that I talked with, and I told them, yeah, we had a meetup with 160 people. And that, I mean, that that's not a meetup; that's a conference. And uh, you know, my rule of thumb is that in a conference there are name tags. Yeah, you know, so in a conference it's much more, you know, uh, maybe more formal, more, uh, more bigger, you know, nicer. So I don't view these meetups in the conference. I think what we had in February this year that was a conference. You know, it had sponsors and the uh, exhibition hall and. Uh, and all that Uh, so yeah so you know but it's it's semantics uh, eventually um so okay yeah now about the frequency of the meetups so in the beginning we had the meetup uh, every two months um now but uh, lately we switch formats you know so we have you know a big conference about every half a year but these uh, bi-monthly meetups we're not doing that. Instead, we're doing bi-weekly lectures because you know the the meetup that we had, for example, in March 2013 with 160 people, it was a lot of work to do. Yeah, it was. It had it had lectures. It had an agenda. It has a lot of you know logistics and so on. So it was a lot of work to do, and we got to the point where we can't dedicate the amount of time needed to bring. Uh, to raise such a meetup uh, with high quality standards. So we did, uh, you know, so we did something which is a bit easier. So what we're doing now, every two weeks, we hold a meetup dedicated to one lecture on one specific topic. And, uh, you know, we have a a wide variety. So sometimes it's more technical, sometimes it's more industry oriented. So we really try to have a, a huge variety of these lectures. And organizing just a lecture is, uh, uh, is much easier. Yeah, You just choose a topic, post about it, and people show up, and you have the lecture, and we are used to doing this. And, and of course, there is work uh, there, but it's much less than organizing uh, bigger meetups. So this is something we can have a reg- regular schedule of once every two weeks. And so
0: I imagine you're doing these in Tel Aviv?
2: Yeah, indeed. So we have uh, actually there is in Tel Aviv, and,
0: and so people are coming from all around the country. Because I- uh, yes, yeah,
2: so yeah, right? y- people are coming from all around Israel. Yeah, you know. So um, let's see. So you know, usually you know, the uh, Israel in its entirety is a pretty small country. So yes, yeah, so people from uh, all the country can make it to Tel Aviv. But uh, you know, so for example, uh, if you have these major cities which are relatively close to Tel Aviv such as Haifa or Jerusalem then it's pe- easier for people to come from there. Uh, if you go a bit further than that then people usually will not travel all the way unless it's a really big uh, meetup. So yeah and uh, you know and we're seeing um, an increased activity in in other major cities I mean most most of the Bitcoin uh, activity in Israel is done in Tel Aviv but, uh, we're seeing more activity in Haifa and Jerusalem. We we had a meetup in uh, in the Technion, a big university in Haifa, and uh, and we're working now on organizing a, a meetup in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So yeah, but uh, it's still the case that uh, most of the activities in Tel Aviv.
0: Okay. And touching on touching on the the, the kind of Israeli landscape, and not to stay on this topic too long, because we have much more interesting things to talk about. Uh, what is sort of the regulatory environment like in, in Israel? And I think you've had some experience with this because your your service uh, Bitcoin uh, had some problems with Israeli banks, correct?
2: Yeah, th- this is correct. Now, um, by the way, uh, yeah, I agree that we can, we shouldn't spend. M- too much time on this topic, but I do want to say that, um, yeah, so uh, eventually, you know, there is a lot of activity that we are doing in uh, in Israel and eventually we decided uh, where we is mostly Ron Gross and I uh, to, um, you know, to make it more formal, to make it larger and more scalable. And that's when we formed the Israeli Bitcoin Association which is, uh, you know, it's a registered nonprofit profit, which has several goals. Uh, one of them is, uh, is educating people about uh, Bitcoin, which is what we do with all the lectures and so on. By the way, um, every lecture that we're doing and every meetup and so on, we're recording and uploading it to our YouTube channel. So most of it is in Hebrew, so it's not going to interest the, most of the listeners here, but eventually, uh, occasionally, we have a special guest in in Israel. We've had here for example, Vitalik Buterin and Peter Todd and Adam back and so on so when so when they're here, we have a special meetup just for them, and we record this lecture so that uh, this is all available on the on the association's youtube channel now, yes, yeah, so another goal relates to what you said, which is working with the government and the authorities to generate a more uh, Bitcoin federal regulation. So the situation right now is that um, there are no official policies from the authorities regarding Bitcoin, unlike what we saw in the US, that FinCEN had something to say about it and the IRS had something to say about it. In Israel, there are no official guidelines. There are some statements, for example, um, eight months ago, the Bank of Israel, together with some other uh, agencies, published, uh, you know, a kind of warning, you know, uh, detailing all of the risks that uh, Bitcoin are involved. So, you know, so like a caveat emptor, and you know, it created a lot of buzz, and right now there's also a lot of buzz about something which is not an official statement by, by the Bank of Israel, but it is a research paper uh, conducted in cooperation with one, with, uh, with, with a member of the research department of the Bank of Israel. So, uh, and this paper mostly explores the potential of Bitcoin. So, so yes, so from actual regulators, this is the situation that there's nothing, basically. So banks do whatever they want, and what they usually want is not to allow anything to do with Bitcoin, but this is also starting to change. There's one bank which is... Uh, uh, which is starting to warm up to Bitcoin, maybe, maybe even two banks now. So so right now, you know, we, we, are, we are making do, you know, we can, someone who wants to use Bitcoin can get some, he, he can do it. it maybe not always easy or clear, but uh, but we can use Bitcoin without too much problem. And yeah, this most covers this issue. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think it's, it's really, uh... It's really exciting listening to you to see how fast and how much it has grown. And I, I think what it's, it's definitely very noticeable to me um, that there is a lot of things going on in Israel. No one meets a lot of people going to conferences uh, from Israel today that are involved in Bitcoin companies there. And, and it's interesting to hear from you how it's, it's such a short time, it's come such a long way. Uh, and also, of course, uh, congratulations for the work you've done there. It's, it's really—I uh, think that's one of the things that I find uh, really impressive about you—is is how like you've done so much work on so many different fronts, from like, uh, uh, especially like educational activities as well, like from uh, posting on Bitcoin Talk or a Stack Exchange, where uh, you know, extremely active.
2: Yeah, sure. You know, we usually enjoy doing this work. You know, in the beginning, uh, you know, I. Felt about it in a business way, you know, especially um, regarding the work in Israel. So you know, I thought, okay, I have a Bitcoin business in Israel. So if I help Bitcoin in Israel grow, then my business will be more successful. Eventually, the the banks back then um, didn't uh, really allow me to to continue operating, and and running an exchange service wasn't exactly my forte. So so that business. Uh, you know, it it's no longer active, but uh, you know, I had some momentum. You know, I I was doing work on Bitcoin in Israel up to now, so didn't really see any uh, reason to stop. So I just doing uh, whatever I did before, and uh, and you know, and about the research stuff. Then yeah, um, you know, I like uh, you know, of course I like mathematics. I like doing research, and uh, so yeah, so it's it's good for me that. Uh, have the opportunity to do research on uh, on a topic that I like. So yeah. So
1: let's move on a bit to uh, some of the work you've done regarding mining reward systems, which uh, you mentioned that was kind of the first thing uh, you got into. And I, I was actually we both were earlier reading through uh, the paper uh, that you wrote, which is quite a while ago as well about uh, mining reward system. It was a very interesting read. I uh, Uh, I thought it was very well written and understandable as well for someone uh, like me who I'm, uh, while I'm an economist, not a mathematician, and uh, I'm also not particularly familiar with the intricacies of that, but um, it's, you know, fairly understandable. But perhaps um, before we dive sort of into technicalities and and more in depth of uh, the work you've done, can you give a very brief introduction to uh, mining pools, what what they are, what their function is, and... uh, what the role of reward systems in, in that context is.
2: Yeah, sure. So, okay. So a mining pool is basically a group of miners mining together and sharing the rewards. Um, I, I I hope I don't have to spend too much what mining is. If if you want, I can do that, but- No, I think that's okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So assuming there is mining, it turns out that small miners who have like, like a small mining equipment, and they try to mine. If they mine in their on their own, they will have a lot of what is called variance. So for example, if I have like, I don't know, one terahash per second, and they look at the difficulty and so on and calculate, and uh, I find out that they will get, I don't know, a hundred dollars per day for mining, I will not actually get a hundred dollars. So on most days I will not get anything at all. And uh, okay, very ra- rarely, I will hit the jackpot and uh, earn ten thousand dollars. And uh, you know the, this the way this works, which is completely random, has some unintuitive properties. So, for example, people can have an intuition that uh, if uh, if they haven't found anything in a while, then they are due to find now. So, in the in the end, it will all even out, and it doesn't. So, you know, if if you mined for a month and you didn't find anything. No one is going to give you back the the work that you lost. The work really was lost. So this is this is a very situ- very difficult situation. And I like to tell the story of how in the uh, in the beginning I myself uh, tried to mine solo, and it was difficult because you know I may, I found maybe one block every several days, and it kept me up at night. I I used to lie in, awake in bed and think, um, did I find a block just now or no? So it always uh, was on my mind, and uh, so that's why most miners would prefer to have, you know, a steady payout that they will receive a, a, a payment exactly proportional to their uh, to their time mining and their hash rate.
0: And this is what mining pool introduces.
2: Exactly, it,
0: it, yeah. It reduces that variance and so you have a regular payout based on your share.
2: Exactly, yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you can mathematically calculate exactly how it works out, but uh, eventually, yeah, m- a mining pool can allow you to have a much more steady payment. Now, actually, the, the larger a miner is, the less is affected by this variance when he's solo mining. And in a pool, the variance that each miner has is as if he mines with the combined size of the pool. So, for example, if I have one terash per second and I mine in a pool which has one petahash per second, then I will have the same variance, the same relative variance than a one petahash per second miner, which is of course much lower. So that's uh, you know that's uh, the you know the the beginning of the theory of mining pools. But it gets much more complicated because uh, uh, because the pool needs to decide uh, how to split up the rewards, and uh, and this turns out to be not a very trivial problem.
0: So there are so let's perhaps we should just point out that there are different types of ways to split up that reward. Uh, the I guess probably the, the the system that was mostly used. Uh, a few years ago and even now is the paper share. So you get paid a certain amount of Bitcoin based on your percentage of the total hashing power, which is the paper share model.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, you could call it that. Well, um, you know, I yeah, I, I guess I should explain first a bit what a share is. So, um, you know, so the first step in uh, splitting out the rewards is measuring how much work each miner does. And this is done using shares. So a share is like a smaller block, an easier block. So a small miner might never find a block, but he will find shares. And and it's impossible to find shares without doing the work needed to find a block. So when the miner finds a share, he submits it to the pool, and this proves that he has done work. So this is the first step. The second step, to figure out what to do with that, so yeah. So in the paper, share a, a method which I'm not sure if it has been the most popular, but it is. A, it is an important method. So the the pools operator simply pays out the miner for every share that the miner finds. So this is a, in in theory the best method for the miner because he has no variance at all. He has no risk. It's all very simple. It just uh, sends shares and gets payments. Very good for the miner. However, it's not so good for the operator because the operator needs to pay out the miners whether they find blocks or not. So, if the, the pool finds a lot of blocks, then that's great. The operator gets to keep all of the rewards. But if the pool finds less than expected blocks, then the uh, operator will have uh, will have to pay out out of his own pocket. And you can calculate the risk that the operator has, and it's a pretty big risk. So traditionally, PPS pools charged very high fees for the service. They have risk. They want to compensate for it. So the fees in the PPS pool are very high, and this this is a problem for the miners. So so it's an alternative to PPS. Uh, People invented a method they usually call the proportional method, where... uh, yeah, the, the, the basic idea is that uh, we we look at the time uh, between two blocks being found. So, every, so if you look, yes, so let's put it this way, the pool uh, has rounds, and whenever a block is found, uh, a round ends and a new round starts, and for every round, the the pay the reward for the block that was found at the end of the round is distributed among the people who mined during this round in proportion to the amount of shares that they've submitted and this uh, this may be sounds logical at first uh, but the problem is, is that this method is completely broken because of the infamous problem of pool hopping so a pool hopping basically means that in a pool that uses the proportional method sometimes are better to mine than others. There are some times when I can mine and the, the expected amount I will get for every share is more than than what it should be. So what uh, people uh, could, can do is to mine in the pool whenever it's profitable. And, uh, um, and when it's not profitable, uh, mine solo, or go to another pool. And of course, this is at the expense of the continuous miners because there's only a given pie and if the hoppers take a bigger portion of it, the continuous miners get less. So this is a problem that uh, that for a long time has been very poorly understood. Even when people started to understand the problem, it was considered very theoretical. No one was sure if people can do it, if they actually do it. There was this uh, time where someone came forward and admitted yes I am pull hopping and this was you know like um, i don't know shocking but it was like wow there is actually someone who is pull hopping but ever since then uh, everybody started to hop there were easy tools uh, that were given out that everybody could use to hop and uh, you know in this um, you know for a long time people thought that they could salvage the proportional method somehow but eventually, there is that. There's that. No, it's just it's it's broken from the ground up. There's you, you just need to throw it away, find a different method. And uh, around that time, um, shortly before I started uh, uh, being involved with Bitcoin, there was this guy called Raulo, which uh, invented a, a, a different uh, method, which was uh, first used by Slash's Pool which is why I just call it slashes method, which, uh, um, you, know, which has, uh, you know, it was built uh, in a specific way which resists uh, pull-hopping. Um, you know, I don't want to go into all the details, but the basic idea is that every, the value of every share that the miner submits decays over time. So if I, fa- if I submit a share now, but the block will be found a long time in the future, I will get much less for it. So this was the the right uh, direction to go in, but the, the method wasn't complete. There it was still somewhat hopable, and there are uh, there were other issues. It was not very you know mathematically rigorous. So I uh, I looked at it and you uh, you know thought what could be done about it, and uh, after enough thinking, I came up with a method which um which is completely hopping proof. And uh, you know it had uh, specific trade-offs, but uh, I, uh, I believe that you know that hopping proof, know uh, that hopability is the worst thing that could could happen. And if you if you have to sacrifice some other performance parameters, then this is uh this is still worth it. So um, you know, so in the beginning um, you know, I offered this method to Slash, uh, and he said he's interested, but he didn't really have time to. And to do anything about it, eventually I wrote uh, a post about it, and uh, a few polls adopted it. Um, and yeah, and this is this, this is similar in many ways to slash this method, but it just makes a few things more accurate. Um, and yes, yeah, so yeah, and, and back then I've done some uh, you know some more theoretical research about it. Um, you know, I uh, I found out that in a way. The, by, by the way, this method was eventually named it the geometric method. So I proved that under certain assumptions, the geometric method is the only hopping proof method. But uh, eventually, I came to realize that um, that these uh, assumptions, you know, can be relaxed, and you can find the methods which are uh, better than uh, the geometric method. So you know, there were a few uh, other methods. So right now, the uh, the most popular method, which is hoping proof, is PPLNS, and yeah, that's where. So when I started writing a paper that simply covers all of the different reward methods and uh, analyzes them, and uh, and yeah, that's I think still a useful resource for um for all of the classical uh, mining pool methods. If we have some time, I will talk about the uh, the newer age of reward methods. So, but. Any questions so far?
0: So, yeah, well, I'd like to go into, uh, maybe perhaps explain a bit more what the double geographic method is, how it works in comparison to the other methods that we described, and also talk about sort of the general landscape of mining and how it's been evolving uh, towards these sort of uh, more just uh, methods where you can't cheat uh, in just a minute. But before we do that, we'd like to uh, take a second to talk about Fairlay. Of course, Fairlay is a Bitcoin prediction market where you can place predictions on the likelihood of sporting events, the Bitcoin price, or uh, current affairs. And if you bet correctly, you earn money. And so, uh, Brian, can you perhaps explain
1: how a Bitcoin uh,
0: prediction market works?
1: So the main difference between a traditional prediction market uh, and uh, something like Fairlay is that you don't... Like bet, or you don't take a position against the house or the company, but it's a marketplace. So essentially, there's always a counterparty on the other side, and failure is just sort of a middleman and to take a small fee. So that's uh, can be a lot more efficient and can be a lot cheaper and fair, especially if you have a if you have a good volume. um Now, what's also interesting is to think a bit about use cases and. Um, the today's bet, uh, the, the one we wanted to point out, was on the Bitcoin difficulty. Now, I'm, I'm trying to pull this up here. Um, just one second. So, for example, there's a bet that the Bitcoin difficulty is going to be higher than 75 um, billion. Is that B for billion? Many of you would know. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, yeah. it's so uh, about right, yeah. I think
1: so, yeah. By the end of the year. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting to think a bit like, why would one um, take a position on a prediction like that? And of course, there could be uh, simply a gambling thing, right? You, you could do this for fun because you think oh, it may be fun or not. But you can also say, instead of, for example, buying mining hardware, which in a sense is a bet that the difficulty is not going to rise too much. Because if it rises too much, your hardware is going to lose all its value. You could say, oh, I'm going to bet that the difficulty is not going to go too high. So you can take a position against that. Or if you already have hardware, it is a way to hedge. So there are all those different ways of um, thinking about predictions, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and and these different use cases.
2: You know, I think a prediction market I get, you know, in the broader economy, economics perspective, predictions market are a way to for the whole market to gain information about specific uh, things by, you know, by rewarding people who generate accurate predictions. So, and yeah, this this information that the prediction market generates um, can be useful when people make decisions and they can plan the economy more effectively. So we wish Fair Day the most success. Now specifically, you know, but in order to really be useful, the, the thing that you bet on, should be actionable, so a bet on whether the difficulty will be higher or lower than some amount, I don't think that's a very effective way the the information you get from it um doesn't really influence much decisions because it's you know it's it's an incomplete bet you know the when people need to decide whether to invest in mining equipment, then the, it's not enough for them a binary prediction difficulty will be higher than that. I mean, what they want to know is what will be the integral of the ratio between the Bitcoin price and the yeah. difficulty from now to infinity. So, you know, so if you do something about that, then, you know, <laughs> it, it becomes a certain of a commoditized uh, mining contract, which is similar to what I tried to do with uh, pure mining, which was a uh, uh, the first uh, deterministic mining bond that uh, I issued on Glebs back when uh, Glebs was a thing, so so yeah, so I think there's a lot of interesting things there, but uh, but yeah, specifically a bet about the difficulty. I I I don't see the value in that.
0: Well, if you'd like to <laughs> bet on the on the difficulty uh, level being at 75 billion by the end of the year, you can definitely do that by going to fairly.com. Slash Epicenter. That's f a i r l a y dot com slash Epicenter. Sign up, deposit some money, and give it a try. And
1: we want to thank Fairlay for uh, their support of Epicenter Bitcoin. Absolutely, thanks so much. Now um, let's dive back into the topics. And and I would suggest, since uh, we're already forty minutes in, uh, that we don't spend too much time more uh, to speak speak about the specific uh, remaining reward schemes but we talk a bit more about maybe the broader picture of um, Bitcoin mining.
2: Yeah, yeah, okay, so yes. Yeah, so I'll just briefly mention that DGM or double geometric method is one of the methods I invented. It's pretty complicated so far. I don't think any pool operator managed to implement it without me, you know, sitting with them and explaining exactly what they, uh, they need to do. So, you know, at, back at the time, um, I thought that the gem was worth the effort, but right now, you know, I think uh, we have bigger fish to fry. And also, you know, people are using people and S, and uh, uh, and you know, a little knowledge is dangerous. So people think that they understand people and S, so they implement it the way they think uh, is right, and it's not exactly accurate. Which I used to be a bit annoyed with at the time, but right now I think um, we uh, we have bigger fish to fry. So, um the problem right now is uh um is mining pool centralization, where if you look at my paper about reward methods from I think it was three years ago now. um so you know all of the methods that appear there have a certain uh, aspect um that uh, you know they uh, with these methods, size does matter. the big. The bigger a pool is the more performance it can offer to its miners so this causes a centralization problem so you know you if you have one pool that is slightly bigger than the others then all the miners will start flocking to it until it gets bigger and bigger and eventually there's just the one pool where everyone mines and they are unable to mine anywhere else because all the other pools are so small and offer such bad performance that it simply makes no sense to um, to mine there. They think this is exactly what we saw um, with uh, with gigash.io that reached the majority of the network hash rate a while ago. So simply because it was so big, every miner which is not completely altruistic simply mined there rather than anywhere, anywhere else because the variance you would have mining for that pool was much lower than uh, other pools. So this is a problem all of the classical reward methods have which is now, which is why right now I'm focusing more on, on new frameworks for reward methods. So there are actually two ways um, to, to combat decentralization. So one of them which I think I suggested two years ago is that miners should mine in multiple pools simultaneously. So for example, if there are uh, 10 pools, then I, as a miner, split my hash rate and uh, spend a little mm. bit in each. And this is a win-win situation. So for the miner, he gets the same performance as if he mined in a single huge uh, pool with the combined size of all his pools. And for the network, this is much healthier because the miner maintains the status quo. He doesn't give more power to the pool, which is already in the most powerful but he keeps the same distribution as before, so pools can compete on their merits rather than who managed to get bigger uh, sooner. So in this way, pool, small pools will still compete. Yeah, right? it. You, you know, if there is small pool, small pool then people will still mind them. Not a lot, but they will mind them. So if so, the pool can can grow and yeah. pools can compete. So is, this is, I think, something which is uh, very important. Um, which is, is this
1: something that's being done today?
2: Well, um, I don't know for sure. I mean, back when I suggested it, you know, a few miners said they were going to do it, but uh, I think there's not enough awareness that this is even possible or, uh, or desirable. But uh, I think the even bigger problem with that is that pools are a commodity, So, you know, uh, even if someone... Creates a software client where which the miner installs and knows how to um, uh, to mine in several pools simultaneously. The user can't just tell this client, okay, mine for the thirty best pools and uh, and uh, and so on. So you know the user actually has to go to every pool's website and they uh, sign up for an account and log in and so on. Uh, yeah okay. I just realized that I've forgotten to um, plug my computer to the power. But let's hope that it will uh, last until um, until the end of the session. Anyway, um, so so you know. So what? And you know. So if we want this to be effective, we need to mine in like I don't know, twenty, thirty pools. And it's a lot of hassle to sign up to all these pools. So I think what we need. What we need. To make is that pools will be more of a commodity, so you can have a client that automatically searches for pools and logs into pools and uh, sends work to pools um, without the user needing to manually intervene.
1: So, so do you think this is going to be the way this problem will be solved? I mean, I mean I, your solution does make sense to me, right? It, it, it makes sense to me that this would uh, address the mining centralization issue. Of course, you, you're totally right to point out it's also an overhead. And it very much seems to be the case that miners are, you know, until something really wrong happens... Uh, Nobody really sees the incentive to do something, and I think you have this sort of public good situation where you think, "Oh, the the other the other people are probably going to do something if it's really bad," so so I will just stay put and do the easiest, most convenient thing. And uh, this is obviously not it. So, do you think um, the mining centralization? Issue will be solved. Do you think it's going to be something like that where you'd say you try to split up mining power among many pools, or is it going to be something uh, radically different that will address this issue?
2: Yeah, so first, I want to say one more thing that, um, you know, actually, um, you know, the what I described just now is simple, but you know, it's not enough. So, what I'm mostly advocating right now is something which I call multi PPS which is based on the same idea of mining in multiple pools simultaneously, but it's a bit, uh, you know, once we make it happen, it will be much more uh, powerful, but it requires more work to do. So, like I said, right now, multi-PPS is what I'm focusing on, you know, you can, uh, currently, this method exists mostly as a post on the Bitcoin Talk forum, so anyone who's interested can look it up. So, yes, so I think, um, you know, the important thing is, that we don't require miners to be very altruistic, right? So, you know, right now, um, when people talk about centralization, they maybe suggest to use P2Pool, which is great, but actually the performance in P2Pool isn't so good. So miners actually have to sacrifice performance in order to do the right thing of mining with P2Pool, which is why I don't think P2Pool is the solution, whereas in my... In my opinion, suggestion, then yeah, maybe there's a bit more effort where the miner needs to switch to a new method, but once he does, he actually gets better performance than he does right now. So we can we do not have to assume that miners are altruistic. Um, and uh, so yeah, so that's about that. So I think really um, this is what mining will uh, look like. However, it should be emphasized that this only solves the problem of mining pool centralization if we have a lot of miners and we don't want them to create a pool which is too big then the multi-pps is great however it doesn't do anything about uh huge mining farms which enjoy economy data centers that holds yeah yeah so um so yeah so it doesn't do anything about that but i don't think this is really a big problem because you know big uh, big companies have a lot of overhead, I think it's possible for at home miners to compete, you know, miners at home don't really enjoy these economies of scale, but you know, they, they are more efficient, they can utilize their existing infrastructure, and they can mine for other purposes than just pure profit, you know, it's interesting, it's uh, you know, it's cool, so, and they also are less risk averse, right? you know, a big company doesn't want to lose, but, uh, a small miner, small user, can you know he he can take this trick. So, so I think uh, we you know so with the mining farms issue exists. I don't think it's a huge problem, and therefore it's nice that if you can solve the mining pool centralization problem.
1: So you think there is a future for uh, home mining uh, for individual miners that just uh, that uh, maybe some economic. Uh, downsides they have in terms of having smaller scale uh maybe not professional cooling facilities etc will be outweighed by other advantages they have as in perhaps free uh, electricity from uh, using um, you know using some sort of uh, heat that's generated from uh, something else yeah
2: yeah there are a lot of options there i mean yes so for example especially users that live in uh, cold countries, they might have, uh, you know, they can salvage some of the electricity costs by using it as heat instead of a normal heater. You know, the, the effectiveness of this is not uh, is not great, but um, but yeah, it's still something that will happen. It will help them compete. So I think we will see a combination of, uh, you know, huge mining farms which are built in places which are cold and where electricity is cheap, I think we will have, uh, you know, small businesses that do mining, which may enjoy some economies of scale and they're a bit more, uh, have a bit less overhead than big companies. And I think we will also have uh, small miners. So all of these will appear, uh, be together. So I don't think any one entity will reach uh, a huge percentage of the network hash rate.
0: But when I first started getting involved in Bitcoin, I guess my, my idea of mining, the obvious uh, sort of scenario for the future was that every internet connected device, every potentially uh, device connected to the internet would be able to do mining. And this is how we would solve this issue of centralized mining is by just everything being decentralized on, on every, whether it be your TV, your cell phone, your fridge, your, your car, or what have you.
2: Yeah, um, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure this perhaps, will uh... work. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure this will work because you know, in order to do mining, you need something which is efficient for the purpose. So, you know, Bitcoin uses SHA two fifty six, which is completely dominated by ASICs, which I think is a good thing. But even if you use a different hash function, which is better in CPUs, still the kind of CPU that you would have in, uh, you know, in a cell phone, I think it will be very good for this purpose. So I don't. See a future where every device will mine, but I do see a future where, um, where miners will just plug in, you know, a a card to their uh, to their computer, and it will mine. It will be built for this purpose.
1: Let's kind of move on from the the mining topic to a topic that's really related to this, and um, which is the Bitcoin economics and the sort of economic viability of Bitcoin. When we talk about the long-term, and of course that does tie in, uh, at least to some extent, to the economics of mining. Um, Now, I'd like to perhaps sort of segue into that um, by discussing briefly uh, a blog post Gavin Andreessen wrote uh, last week about, uh, I think it was called like block size economics. And in it, he made the argument that uh, the block size should be kept limited to uh, one megabyte um, and of course, the consequence of that is that uh, there's o- also only a limited number of transactions that fit in there. And in the long run, if actually more people want to do transactions and there's room in there, You know, this really drives the transaction fee price. So you know, if there's a limited supply, uh, this would, would drive up transaction fees and would drive up revenues for miners. And uh, I guess his idea is that Uh, this would be a way to ensure miners have enough incentive to keep running uh, their hardware so we have a secure Bitcoin network. Because after all, the mining reward, block reward will be dropping in the future. So, uh, and one question that is looming and I think is on on many people's minds who think about these issues is, um, will this create a problem in the long term? So, uh, what are your uh, thoughts on this issue?
2: Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I have a few things to say about that. Maybe we'll start with the. Uh, yeah, you know, you started by mentioning uh, Gavin's post. Um, I think the the analysis there was very incomplete. I think he doesn't, uh, you know, really consider all of the issues here. So, um, you know, I want to maybe start with something that. Uh, okay, I'll, maybe I'll briefly repeat the problem. If we remove all limits on the block. Then you know the the marginal cost of adding a transaction to this to a block will be close to zero. So miners will have an incentive to just include every transaction. But if they include every transaction, um, then no user would want to pay any significant fees because he knows that the transaction will be accepted anyway. So this is the tragedy of the commons problem. So so ac- actually, it's kind of a reverse logic because. Uh, uh, in this case, if miners were a mono- monopoly, usually we think of a monopoly as a bad thing. But in this case, uh, a mining monopoly would uh, be a solution to this problem because the, this monopoly, this monolithic mining entity, could just decide what phase that he, wa- that he wants to do. But if you have many independent miners, then even if the best thing for the miners and for the Bitcoin network is that their fees will be low but significant, Uh, then the miner, to maximize his own profit, will accept transactions which have insignificant fees. Um, And this is a problem. And right right now it's not a problem because there is a limit on the block size. But if we remove that, then then it will be a problem. So the solution that uh, Gavin has suggested or or mentioned in his post is the... is assurance contracts, I don't really believe in this solution. Uh, In theory, it doesn't really work because whatever the situation is, if um, the total uh, pledges are more than required to support the uh, the network, then no user will actually have an incentive to pledge. You know, he would much rather have other people pay and he won't pay. And if we don't have enough pledges, then the fact that the minor pledges will not help because it's one just one part in the whole group. So you know, so I don't think uh, assurance contracts have a strong theory behind them, and I also don't. Uh, I think they have a strong empirical uh, support for them because uh, you know Gavin mentioned the example of Kickstarter, which uh, which is of course a pretty successful platform. But you know there, so first people are not being completely altruistic. I mean they do get some benefits from pledging to Kickstarter, you know, for the pledge itself, not just the completion of the project. But they have these uh, perks. So maybe maybe they pledge to do this. And also the amounts are low enough that you know the the user can just say, eh hey, what the heck? I'll throw in ten dollars. But um you know so when we're talking about Uh, incentivizing miners to secure the Bitcoin network we're talking about much bigger amounts and I don't think this is a place where we can trust people's altruism Um, so I'm not a big believer in assurance contracts as a solution now as now as for uh, you know blocks as limit I think it solves the you know it's it's the wrong solution I mean if I mean okay I think I think it's very obvious that the block size limit should be more than one megabyte. The Question is whether it should be 10 megabytes, 100 megabytes, I don't know what. But I don't think that the block size limit is a solution to incentivizing miners because it creates perverse incentives. Um, What a block size limit does um, is, uh, you know, encouraging people to have transactions which are physically smaller and this has really nothing to do with the issue of uh, incentivizing miners because miners just hash the difficulty of the hashing has nothing to do with um with the physical data size of the transactions. So this is you know this is a bargaining problem between the miners and the users. Let's let's assume for this discussion that um that miners are a monolithic entity. So the miners say to the user, okay, um, I can include your tra- transaction. It doesn't cost me anything, but uh, you know, but you want me to do it, so I want you to pay me for doing this service for you. So, you know, there's a lot of theory about bargaining and Shapley values and so on, but the the main point is, is that we should take whatever is the value of the transaction for, for the user, and the fee should be about half of that. You know, I, I don't to go into all the details but uh, the amount of fee that the user should pay should depend on how much he wants this transaction to enter the block and again this has nothing to do with the data size of the, the transaction so of course the problem is that we don't know um, what is the uh, the value of the transaction for the user and we don't want to and it's also to... going to vary a lot, right, from
1: one user to the other. Even though the transaction may look the same uh, for the miner.
2: Yeah, yeah, this is true. And and I don't want to uh, enter an actual uh, verbal bargaining for each such transaction. However, I, I do believe that the you know uh, the amount of Bitcoin sent in a transaction is a pretty good proxy. I mean, it's of course not accurate at all. But I think that, um, uh, you know, someone who, you know, in in quantitative matters, not in, you know, emotional matters, I mean, if, if I send someone a million Bitcoin, then maybe emotionally this transaction means a lot to me. But you know, if, if it probably means that, you know, economically, it's not very important. So I think someone who sends a million Bitcoins will probably be willing to pay higher fees than someone who sends a milli-Bitcoin. So I think that the value of the transaction, the amount sent, is a good proxy to, you know, how much this transaction is worth, which is why I think a percentage fee on the value of a transaction is a, is a good thing to have. Of course, it has this it issues, and, you know, you don't know
0: how... But not, not a fixed percentage fee.
2: Oh, oh, right. So, okay, so... Um, Okay, so because then we just
0: start getting into the same type of model that we have now, where you want to send large amounts of money over bank transfer, and that costs. Oh, a that's large yes, very really interesting
2: that you're
1: saying that. I've never heard someone uh, propose that before. Yeah. Of course, it makes some sense, right? That's how uh, all payment systems work yeah. today. I mean, I think in uh, yes. all, or at least the vast majority.
2: Yeah, yeah, So I want to add a few more things. That uh, yeah. so, yeah. I, I think that when we talk about a percentage uh, amount then, you know, it also depends how much we're talking about exactly, right? So, Sebastian mentioned that right now we pay very high fees. So, you know, we can pay a percentage fee which is not very high. I mean, what I have in mind is maybe zero, 0.1% or maybe even less than that. So, it's, it would be better. I I should also add that, um, uh, you know, uh, something which is like that but is a bit different is to... If now we have a cap on the amount of data that can go into a block, I think we could also have a cap on the amount of value transferred in the block. Of course, it will have to be some fairly large amount, but what will happen if we place uh, this cap, then miners will uh, automatically be incentivized to charge a certain percentage, right? So for X, for every, Transaction the miner wants to put into the block, then he knows that on one hand he gets some fee, and on the other hand it costs him some space in the block. So the equilibrium here is that there will be a percentage fee. So you know we could either have a you know hard coded transaction fee part of the protocol, or we can have a cap on the block size. You know, it it will result in similar results, but. uh, but you know the the block cap size is maybe a bit more dynamic. We don't really have to set the exact fee. We will let the miners decide and the users how much fee it's worth it for them.
1: So, so how do you think that would happen? Would there be some sort of a consensus that this? Because it seems to me that these are uh, dramatic changes that would be very very difficult to get. Um, a consensus on I mean I think especially the one where you talk about the percentage fee or limiting the amount of bitcoins that can be in a block when you talk about block size I guess that's already in discussion anyway and we'll probably have to change yeah
2: yeah. so yeah so this is a major change um, you know so you know in general these kind of changes to the bitcoin protocol are, are pretty hard to do you uh, because, you know, there is some status quo bias, you know, where people don't want to break a, a running system that is worth billions of dollars. But, you know, I think eventually, um, you know, I think we need to start warming up to to suggestions like this, because, you know, this whole thing will be relevant years from now where, um, where the new Bitcoins created will be much lower. I mean, right now, We don't have to worry about incentivizing miners because you have this built-in inflation, which I think more than enough incentivizes miners. So this is a problem for maybe ten years from now. So I think we should, right now, start the dialogue about this, and maybe eventually, um, uh, you know, start thinking about making this change. You know, so for example, um, you know, actually you. If the same applies to several issues, so for example, if you look at the cost of a transaction, it has several factors. So you have the cost <coughs> of storing it and uh, propagating it, uh, and if we want to keep this cost down, we need to put a cap on the data of data size of the block. There's also the cost for the nodes to verify the ECDSA signatures, which is like a CPU cost which right now is not being treated at all. I mean, you can have, um, you know, maybe a small, uh, physical small transaction, but which, re- which requires a lot of ECDSA signatures to verify. So this also has a cost and uh, it's not being considered right now. So I think we should add either a cap on the amount of computations needed for the block or maybe a hard-coded fee per computation uh, and this, these two things relate to the margin cost of transaction, and you have the amortized cost of transaction, which is the hashing. And for that, I think we need an element um, um, of either a fixed percentage fee or a const- or a capped block uh, value. So I think th- this, is- these are big changes, and. Uh, uh and they're not discussed very much right now I think the whole discussion about transaction fees is mostly very naive um but I think uh, you know in order to in order for bitcoin to work we need to think about these things and to seriously consider uh, big changes because I want but I think they're,
0: they're I think the the when you say that they're a little naive is somewhat normal since we don't really have a lot of experience with operating bitcoin at a scale uh similar to you know the, the credit card uh transaction network so there, there, we have very little experience in actually running this at uh, a life size
1: you can model it uh mathematically or economically right and and then many sure. of these things i guess that's a positive thing or bitcoin are quite predictable
2: you know i think both theory and practice have the role i mean we will be much wiser when we have much more empirical experience. However, we shouldn't leave out the theory and we shouldn't wait to have this empirical experience. I think we should research these problems. And I think it's it's very good that uh, there's a lot of work uh, in academia being done on Bitcoin. You know, uh, a lot of the research being done is, is very good and it highlights uh, very real issues. So I think we should, uh, you know, we should do both. I mean, we shouldn't, uh, just wait we should actually you know tackle this its problems and you know first understand the problem then offer all the possible solutions then choose the best solution and uh, I really hope that whatever the best solution is, it will be eventually uh make its way into Bitcoin because uh, I would much rather have Bitcoin succeed than some other alt I think that uh, The people who invested in Bitcoin early on should, uh, you know, gain a return on their investment and all their contribution to the success of cryptocurrencies. And think, uh, you know, ultimately the power to change Bitcoin is in the hands of the users. And I hope they will be smart enough to agree to changes that uh, can help Bitcoin, you know, scale up and uh, succeed in the future.
0: I think that's a great uh, word to end on
1: exactly yeah well uh, many thanks so much for joining us today Sure. Uh, to and thanks you. for you know diving into these issues now we've talked about quite a few things from israeli bitcoin association to the meetup to etc um we will link to those in the show notes so if you want to read about um, or, or if you want to read his uh, paper on uh, mining pool reward systems and, and those things we will link to those and you can find those uh, on our website or on the soundcloud page in the posting. I just want to say I I also really enjoyed talking about these things and we don't really get to
0: talk about the really go in depth and technical uh, topics very often I find, Brian, I don't know if you'll agree um, uh, especially lately and uh, it it was interesting to, to do the research for this and I guess perhaps uh, realize that uh, a lot of these topics, I'm not very fluent in them. So personally, I thought it was very uh, enriching and uh, to uh, to do the research uh, and then to have you on to discuss them. Sure, thank yeah, you. Absolutely,
1: yeah. And yeah. and I think you're you very right in pointing out uh, that these are issues that are sort of far away because we have this block reward because at the moment, still Bitcoin is barely used economically, right? Few people are actually using it to to pay for things so these are all sort of issues that are on the horizon but it's really important that we uh think about those today um yeah, yeah. and 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 the challenge will certainly be i think you are also very right in pointing that out that it it is possible in my eyes that we will see the right solution but that it will not be possible the like, consensus to move to the right solution so that's definitely a danger in bitcoin uh, hopefully that won't be, happen, but uh, it's something, a uh, danger we have to be aware of. Yeah. Um. So yeah, well, thanks so much mm. for joining us. And now also uh, we have another hangout coming up next week. Mm. And so, that is on 8, uh, like 1800 UTC. So 6 p.m. UTC. I don't know what that is in uh, time zones that I actually used.
2: Uh. (laughs) yeah Yeah, okay sure so yeah so it was great talking with you guys thanks for inviting me and yeah thank you
1: so much many um but yeah so the hangout next tuesday uh, no on wednesday october 29th we have david johnson on from uh, um, pd angel and Mastercoin. so we'll talk to him uh, about uh, his activities and um thanks you uh, our listeners thanks so much for listening uh, you can follow us on Twitter at EpicenterBTC. You can also support us uh, with your donations, which we very much appreciate, at epicenterbitcoin.com tips. And uh, you can also leave us an iTunes review, which we appreciate. Uh, helps new people find the show. So thanks so much, and uh, we'll be back next week.